God, we thank you so much for a time and a space to come to worship you, God, to be vulnerable before you. Lord, we invite your spirit into this place. I invite your spirit into this message, God. I pray over these people that their hearts would be softened to your word, God, that their spirits would respond to the call of yours. God, we love you so much, and we are grateful to be here today. Please be present with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Anchor. Uh, every time I preach, I always get like really nervous right before I get on stage. And then I get on stage and I see your guys' faces and I just think, man, these people love me. I love them. We're good. I don't, hey, Meredith. Hey, girl. Hey. Uh, so <laughs> I don't even have to be nervous. We're good. Okay. Uh, so this morning, I have the honor and the privilege of preaching our last sermon in the series that we're in, which is going over kind of our core values, our mission, what we're doing here, our purpose, right, which is to navigate life together. Um, Last week we heard from Elizabeth about what it means to be vulnerable in worship, and that's the navigate portion of what we do, is laying our souls before the Lord. And the week before that we got to hear from Kurt about what it means to live a life poured out in service to God about what it means to be discipled and to have people discipling us. And today, I get to talk about my very favorite part of this whole deal, which is the together part. Um, I will tell you that I'm passionate about this sermon because this idea of togetherness is what brought me here and made me stay. It's this that I experienced that brings me to stand before you today being the person who is like, I'm kind of like a guardian, like the guardian of the together portion of our vision. It's like, ooh, like (laughs) it's just very fitting and I love it and I'm so excited, okay? Um, And so in order to start my whole shebang off right in terms of being together, um, I was really challenged by Elizabeth's sermon last week to be vulnerable. Um, And so today I'm going to share my testimony. but before we get there, I just need, I have a couple questions. Have, it, have any of you ever felt like really alone? Like just like, I'm sure that most of us have, right? It's a feeling that it seems almost inescapable in this lifetime that at some point or another we will get to that place where we feel alone. How many of you feel like you have to do things by yourself? You have to be independent. Right, okay, so we live in this culture that is like rife with messages of independence. That's the thing that's spoken over us from the beginning is learn to tie your own shoes. You can make your own sandwich. Like, come on, mom. Like, I'm only 10. Like, let's go. Okay. <laughs> this message is spoken to us and it combats one of the very first things that God ever says about us. And that's where I want to take you today, to Genesis 2. And I'm going to read verses 8 and 9, and then 15 through 18. And they say this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just for some context, um, I wanted to take you to the way beginning. This is creation. <laughs> this is God for the very first time speaking into motion the course of history, using his breath, pouring it out on the world. Okay, this is the beginning. All right, and so what happens next is important for us to remember. Verses 15 through 18. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And this is the key. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is one of the very first things that God says about me. This is one of the very first things that he says about you. It is not good for man to be alone. Right? This together portion of our, of our whole uh, mission is critical. Right? Because it addresses one of the very first needs that God identifies in us. To be together. Okay, so my testimony begins in the humble city of Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, these are my parents. Da, da, not, they're not fishermen. <laughs> no, <laughs> these, okay, so I don't know about you guys, but like there is something about late 80s, early 90s photos that just like does something for me. I'm like, ooh, you two look fabulous in your leather and your torn jeans. Oh, right, so like my dad, his hair, I don't know what's going on. He doesn't have that much hair now, but you know, he looks fabulous. Uh, I have always been told he kind of looks like Chuck Norris, like so much so that <laughs> I brought this picture once to school and I convinced the kid my dad was Chuck Norris. That was the last time Billy ever messed with me. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I didn't threaten him <laughs> that much. Um, and then <laughs> my beautiful mom, look at her bangs. Oh my goodness. Woo! Okay, so these are my parents. Um, and this is kind of where, you know, like, I've got you all jazzed up. Like, this is going to be a great story, a great time. Uh, my testimony is pretty sad. <laughs> okay, so these are my parents. Um, and when I was born, my dad didn't stick around for very long after, uh, maybe a few months, um, and that's because my mom is mentally ill. She has something called bipolar, and for those of you in the crowd who are familiar with this, I may be butchering the definition for you, but I am speaking about what I have lived through, okay? So on the one hand, my mom cycles from, from really uh, severe depressive episodes, which are like the kind of depression where you don't get out of your bed, where you don't eat, you don't shower, you don't cook, you don't clean, you don't take care of the things that need to be done because you're chained to your room. Right? She cycles from that to this other side, which is called mania. And I think a lot of people get this picture of mania that's like, I'm on top of the world, I'm so happy, I'm like jazzed about everything. And I have seen my mom like that sometimes. Uh, but mostly for my mom, that means she's incredibly violent. It means that she's incredibly angry. Uh, and it means that she's incredibly abusive. Um, so that's kind of the environment that I grew up in, and that's my dad left. You know, he wasn't around. So um, I have this mom who's mentally ill, and, and this message was spoken over me from my very beginnings in life, okay, that I had to take care of myself. I didn't have a dad who was going to do it, and I didn't have a mom who was going to be there. And my mom is on medication for that bipolar, and man, she's doing so good now. <laughs> but when I was little, uh, she did not take it. It was a constant battle of her in and out of the psych ward and me being passed from family member to family member. And every time that she set foot into the hospital felt like an attack on me. Felt like, I'm not good enough. I wasn't good enough to make my dad stay, and I'm not good enough to make my mom stay out of the hospital. That's the message that was spoken into me growing up. I have to do it myself. So from a very young age, like I'm talking five, six, one of my first memories is standing at the stove making pancakes for myself because if I didn't feed me, nobody was going to. Right? Independence is something that is at the root of who I am. 
Okay, and so something happened. Uh, I was in grade school. My mom just kept getting worse and worse, and uh, my dad wasn't around like we've already addressed, but the state started digging around in our business, and I don't know if you know many northern people. Uh, there are northern people that just does not like other people like picking apart their business, you know? Like, I don't know. We're just like a cold people. We're like... <laughs> Our exteriors reflect the ice that we live in, ha, 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 right? And so, so the school started digging around, and there was talk of me being put into foster care, and that freaked my mom out, right? It's like, what parent wants to go through that process of like, wow, my kid's in foster care now, and I don't get to see them, right? And so she started digging in online, like, just like, if she had a physical, sh- you know, just like, like, woo, woo, looking for my dad, okay? Um, and this really cool thing happened. Uh, she found an article about him, and it was from the Gazette in Colorado Springs here. Um, and he was featured in that because he was an intern at what's called the Mission, and that's just south of downtown, um, and it's still operating, and they're still churning out new believers, which is incredible. Um, we wrote letters to my dad. Okay, so I was like nine years old. We, we wrote letters to my dad for the first time, and it probably took about a month for us to get any kind of response back. Um, see, my dad had grown up on the streets, uh, so his very, some of his very first experiences with the world were also of independence, of taking care of himself and not relying on other people, because the people that were in his life were not people that he could rely on. So at 14, he was living on the streets. He was feeding himself. He was working for himself. He was making sure that he had clothes. He was making sure that he had fun. <laughs> and fun for my dad came in the form of addiction. Um, and so I have a long family history of mental illness and of addiction. But my dad, having come here, he met Jesus. Um, and so when we wrote those letters, he didn't respond for about a month, I think, because he was scared. What would those letters say? You know, what, would, what could he possibly have to hear from a daughter who he had left and from a woman who he hadn't seen in years? Right? But we got those letters. We got letters back from him, and it was, like, really cool. For the first time, I was getting to interact with my dad. That's a really powerful thing. Okay, but what happened next kind of threw me for a spin. Uh, my mom packed me up and sent me to live in Colorado. Uh, with a man I didn't know, with my dad. Right, so at 11 years old, I'm out here in the big west trying to make a name for myself. Um, I come here, um, and about six months after I first come here, I first start living with my dad, he gets married. And I don't know if you guys have strained relationships with your parents, but boy, did that put some tension in ours. Um, and about a month after they were married, my stepmom was pregnant. So it was me, 11-year-old me, um, in a house with a dad I couldn't get to know because there were two other people competing for his attention, uh, with a stepmom who I didn't really want to know because I loved my mom. And as, as painful as that relationship was for me, I was her biggest defender. Um, and in a city where I knew no one. I talk about lonely. Okay, so um, I'm going to show you a couple pictures, <laughs> and they're embarrassing, so I just, <laughs> but they, they facilitate what I'm explaining next, okay? Um, my dad didn't really know how to parent, you know, when I very first got here. Um, so his form of punishment, like any time I would get in trouble, his message to me was, okay, well, if you can't follow my rules, I'll send you back to live with your mom. Um, and that hurt, you know, that was a betrayal every time he said it. 
It was, you're not good enough for me, and I'll just pack you up and send you away. Um, and so this is sixth grade me, right? Like, I, you know, nothing special but the poofy hair, like, what's going on? Uh, it's fine. It's embarrassing. This is embarrassing for me, but whatever. <laughs> okay, go to the next one. This is seventh grade, still, like, happy and, like, discovering skincare. praise the Lord. Uh, <laughs> and then the next picture, and this is where things start to take a turn. It looks different, doesn't it, than even just the last one. See, I've always hated pictures because my face betrays me always with my feelings. Now, that's the one part that I just could not seem as a kid to get in control was my face. I mean, even to this day, I hate pictures, so showing these to you guys is a miracle. <laughs> okay, but something started to happen in eighth grade. I started to draw inside, right? Because I'd been spoken, I'd had this message spoken over me time and time again that I wasn't enough, um, that I was too independent. This thing, this thing that had survived or gotten me through my early childhood, this independence became a stumbling block for me and my dad's relationship. And so every time he would say, I'll just pack you up and you can go live with your mom, I would say, okay. And so I sucked it all back in, like clearly I can't trust you, I'm not good enough for you. And so I buckled down and I took it inside. Right? That's always who I've been, I take it inside. And maybe some of you are like that too. Okay, in eighth grade I started hanging out with kids who were like, on the edge, you know, like those kids that your parents warn you about, they're like, peer pressure is bad, you know, um, and so I started experimenting with drinking and with drugs, um, and so you can see, even just in my face, things are changing, right, a cycle is starting, a process is happening that you'll soon find spun out of control for me. Okay, ninth grade, if, okay, listen, if what... <laughs> If what was going on in my life was not a cry for help, look at this haircut. <laughs> like, why did nobody help me? <laughs> okay, like, I don't, I can't even, I can't even look at that girl. Who is that? Okay, <laughs> I started getting into this habit of hiding things from my parents, right? Because I was, I was drawing more and more into myself, and I kept being told, you're not good enough. And so perfectionism became my external world right? Despite looking like this, I made sure my room was cleaned. I made sure my chores were done. I made sure that when my dad told me that I had to be ready to pack up and go, that I was ready, okay? Perfectionism became the thing that I strove for, but inside I was hurting. Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> I took that in the form of getting myself a little secret boyfriend. Uh, you know, like high school is a weird time. Uh, that is a miracle, too. Um, anyway, <laughs> sorry, just making fun of myself. Um, <laughs> I wasn't allowed to talk to boys. That was like one of the cardinal rules of our house is like, if you talk to a boy, then you're sinning. And so uh, I had to do it in secret. Don't laugh, Kurt, it's embarrassing. <laughs> um, but one night what happened was I was talking to him on the phone, because that's what we did. We talked on the phone late at night. We texted all day, all night. It was pretty exhausting, right? Like, hide your phone every time your parents come in the room. Don't, don't answer them honestly who you're talking to. And one night we were on the phone, and my stepmom texted me. She was downstairs feeding my brother. She texted me, and she said, it's time for you to go to bed. And I was like, uh-oh. Right, and so um, the next morning I woke up, and I was... I was expecting something explosive, right? I was expecting, like, 
to walk downstairs and get punched in the face, like, not literally, but anyway, and uh, I went downstairs the next morning, and nobody said anything, and I was like, okay, but I still had some of that youthful arrogance in me, right, and so I went to school, I was like, well, they didn't say anything, so I must be fine, but then going home, I was like, oh, now they're going to say something, but nobody said anything to me, right, Um, and so I went upstairs, I got called back downstairs for dinner, the tension in the room was crazy, right, but nobody said anything. Uh, So I went back upstairs, and it wasn't until after dinner, they let me wait a whole day (laughs) with this kind of like, uh (laughs) uh-oh feeling, which if you're a parent, like, that's a good trick, I'm just saying. (laughs) Um, And they sat me down on the couch, and I had to sit across from my stepmom and my dad on the other side of the room. My dad said to me, who were you talking to? And at that point, I was ready. I was ready for it to come out. I was like, I know they're going to take my phone. I know they're going to see all of these messages. I was talking to a boy. Uh, And my dad said, okay, if you can't follow my rules, you can get out. You can leave. And he said, you got to go live with your mom again. And so, you know, I was prepared for that because I'd heard that time and time again, right? What I wasn't prepared for uh, was my stepmom to look at me and say, I can't have you growing up an influence to my kids, a separation, right? My kids. I wasn't one of those. Every time before, she had defended me. She had said, John, you can't throw her out like that. She's your daughter. Um, But this one hurt. This one was incredibly personal. And so I said, okay, um, I'll suck it all back in, and I'll be perfect Valerie. I'll make sure that my room is clean before I leave. I'll call my aunt because I'm not living with my mom because she is, ooh, a lot. Um, And so I called my Aunt Angie. I was ready to go. Um, And I think almost what happened next is worse than that initial hurt. That initial hurt feels lonely, right? But it's the things that happen after that stick the nails in the coffin, right? And so for me, that meant that um, I called my aunt, and I told her, Angie, I need to come live with you. And she said, of course, you can come live with me. Um, and so I started to get these plans ready, and my dad was on board, and it was fine, until he realized that I wasn't going to live with my mom, which was the punishment, and he knew that, that I was going to go live with my aunt. And so he said, you can't leave. You're stuck here. So I'm stuck in between two families, right? I'm stuck in between a family who gave me up in the first place, a mom who I felt didn't want me, and so she sent me to live here, and a dad and a stepmom who thought I was other, who said, you're not part of our family, but I had to stay. And that, for me, was my very first experience with that cycle I'm talking about with my mom, right, with depression, the kind that chains you to your room. And so um, I started drinking a lot, um, that's, a, that's a big problem in my family is drinking, right? And so I got into this routine where I would go to school and my friend who had access to her mom's liquor cabinet and her mom was rich, she didn't care if there was alcohol missing, uh, she would bring me alcohol, I would get drunk until lunch. At lunch I would go to Acacia Park, still there, but now they put a, they put a little police station in there if that gives you any indication. Um, <laughs> and I would get high until the end of school. And then at the end of school I would go to the park for my final, like, Ooh, get me through the night, right? And I would get high again, and I would go home, I would sleep until dinner, wake up for dinner, and then go back to bed. I wasn't doing my homework, and this was pretty much every day, every day of my life. 
It started to get so bad um, that I said, I can't live like this anymore. And so um, I came up with a plan to end my life. Um, I had a date set, and it's, it's funny how God works. <laughs> About two weeks before that day that I had marked in my head and on my calendar, um, my dad took me out for coffee, which was so weird because our house was tense around these times, right? You're like, you don't want to sit across from your daughter who you've, you've told is not enough. I'm like, I didn't want to sit across from my dad who was the one who told me that. Um, but he took me out for coffee and, and he looked across the table and he just said, where has my kid gone? And it all came out. Right, there's something about a hand being extended, even if it's the hand that hurt you in the first place, that brings you to a place of reality. Dad, I'm going to end my life. Right? And so that sparked a whole big change in my life. Um, the first was that I had to start counseling. And like, for those of us who have some emotional baggage, like counseling is the last place we want to be. You know what I mean? They're like wizards or something. They're like slicing and dicing your life. And you're like, I have to talk about my feelings. Like, I don't want to do that. Right? So that was awful. And I hated that. But even worse, I had to go to youth camp. <laughs> and like in the back of your heads, those of you who have been to youth camp, you're like, you camp is a blast. <laughs> Not for me. Um, I was the only person in my church who could go to youth camp, and so I had to go with a big youth group uh, from across town. And when I went to youth camp, in, in the back of my head I said, I've been pretending this for a very long time. Right? I've been pretending that I know God because I grew up in a Christian home and that was or with my dad anyway, and that was something that was really important to him, so I knew the Sunday school answers. I knew how to get through that week. That wasn't the problem, okay? Um, it was like the second to last night of youth camp that was the problem. <laughs> you see, they did an altar call, which if you're not familiar with that, is like, hey, accept Jesus. And I was like, no. <laughs> uh, but I was with this big youth group full of kids, right? And I was convinced and terrified that that youth pastor, if he saw that I wasn't responding the way that he thought I should be responding, that he would tell my dad, and that my dad would know there were some deeper issues here. Uh, and so all of these kids start going up to the altar and responding to this call, and I was like, no, I will not be the one. I cannot be the one, because all that I have ever seen from the people who I am supposed to rely on is them turn their backs on me. I cannot do it. Right? I don't know who God is. I don't trust him. Um, but more and more kids started going to the altar, and I started to get more and more scared that I would be the last one sitting. So I said, okay, I'll go up to the altar, but I'm not praising him. I'll go up to the altar, and I'll tell him every single reason I have to not trust him every single reason I have to not like him, every single reason I have to put distance between me and Creator God. Okay, and I did that. And I was screaming in my head. Every reason I didn't like him, every reason I couldn't trust him, everything that had gone wrong in my life. And from somewhere in the very back of my head, God spoke. And he said, it's okay to be afraid. That changed my life. And I know that one of the most common commandments that we hear from the Lord in Scripture is do not be afraid. But that is not what he was saying. He was saying, it's okay that you don't know me. It's okay that you don't trust me. 
It's okay to be afraid of what stepping into this relationship looks like. It's okay to open up the hurt and to let people back in. It's okay. And that was hard to hear. And that broke my heart. But that night, I gave my life to Christ. And now I get to stand here before you guys. Like, how crazy is that? Um, My life was not perfect after that. Please hear me. I still struggled. I struggled with drugs. I struggled with alcohol for a long time after that. Right? But the difference was that I had a hope. And that that hope is that one day... I might be able to use my experience to teach other people. This kind of together that we're talking about here is the kind of together where restoration happens. Right? We talk about restoring hope, which is this whole month. This place restored my hope because what I saw when I came here was this idea of something called offensive authenticity. Right? For two reasons. Offensive authenticity is real people seeking out real experiences, seeking out real life, seeking out real victory, because that's where Jesus meets us. He doesn't meet us in the phony. We can play that game, and we can play it until we are run dry. And I did that, and I came to the end of myself. He meets us when we're real. He meets us when we're authentic, when we scream at him every reason that we cannot trust him. That's where he meets us. And that's what I found here, right? It's people who were willing to bring me into that. People who are willing to sit here and listen to my testimony and not walk out. And I'm a broken person just like you, but I have hope. And that hope is in Christ. Offensive authenticity is on the offense. It is drawing people into experiences that are real. That means that our neighbor, who we haven't said two words to, That means we invite them to church because it's real. That means we share our lives with them because our lives are what's happening, our lives are what's real. And it's offensive because Jesus is offensive. Jesus, in Mark 2, there's a perfect example. I'm going to read it for you. Mark 2, verses 16 and 17, it says this, When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him, Jesus, eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the wealthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This kind of offensive authenticity brings us to a place where it costs us something. We will never make it through that kind of experience without it costing us something. Right? It may cost you your reputation, Jesus, why do you eat with sinners? Lindsay, why do you eat with sinners? It may cost you your time and your energy walking with somebody through their sin to get them to the foot of the cross. It may cost you personally. It may cost you the coat off your back. It may cost you the food on your table. It may cost you the money in your pocket. But what are we willing to risk to be offensively authentic, to get people to the foot of the cross? Together, restoration happens, but it's only because of offensive authenticity. It's only because we are going out and we are bringing people in to see Jesus. Okay, I know that you're familiar with Hebrews 10, 
with our core verses. But I want to read to you from a little bit before them, okay? Verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, not on our own, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with a broken heart, with a hurting heart, with an authentic heart, a sincere heart. And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilt of conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. My life is evidence of that. He is faithful to meet us when we are honest. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Anchor, we are called to be a place where people can come to experience Jesus. That costs us something. And I have seen you guys step up to the plate. I have seen you be offensively authentic. I've seen that. Okay, but we can't stop with just one open mic night. We can't stop with one person inviting to church. Being offensively authentic costs us something you will look different to the world. That's reality. But I hope that that is the thing that you were called to, is to look different, that people might step here. I met Jesus here. I know that many of you have met Jesus here. We are called to be together. Please find yourselves posture of prayer, whether that's standing, whether that's sitting, whether that's kneeling at the altar, um, get yourself there. Get yourself to the foot of Jesus. If you'll bow your heads, if you have heard your story in mine, if you have heard your hurt in mine, I have one message for you. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay. It's okay that Christ draws you into an experience that is other, that is new, that you don't understand. It's okay. He is faithful. God, I pray over this congregation that those who are hurting, that those who don't know you, that those who have got some beef with you, Lord, that they would bring it to you. You did not set me on fire when I brought to you my honesty. And I know that you won't for anybody else either. And God, I know that my testimony is not a prescription for others. That you don't speak in the same way to each of us, God, but I know that you speak. And Lord, I pray that you would touch each of these people's hearts, God, that you would speak to them a message that they don't have to do it alone. God, for those of us who have some unlearning to do, for those of us who have some stuff that we have built up between you and I, God, I pray that you would break those walls down, that you would help these people to find themselves at your feet, being honest. God, you are big enough for our anger. You are big enough for our hurt. God, you are big enough for anything that would stand between us. Lord, we love you. 
And I just pray that you would have those experiences with your people today. Amen.